Saturday, October 3rd, 1942. Dear Kitty, everybody teased me quite a bit yesterday because I lay down on the bed next to Mr. Van Damme. At your age, shocking. And other remarks along those lines. Silly, of course. I'd never want to sleep with Mr. Van Damme the way they mean. Yesterday, Mother and I had another run-in and she really kicked up a fuss. She told Daddy all my sins and I started to cry, which made me cry too. And I already had such an awful headache. I finally told Daddy that I love him more than I do Mother, to which he replied that it was just a passing face. But I don't think so. I simply can't stand Mother, and I have to force myself not to snap at her all the time and to stay calm, when I'd rather slap her across the face. I don't know why I've taken such a terrible dislike to her. Daddy says that if Mother isn't feeling well or has a headache, I should volunteer to help her, but I'm not going to because I don't love her and don't enjoy doing it. I can't imagine Mother dying someday, but Daddy's death seems inconceivable. It's very mean of me, but that's how I feel. I hope Mother will never read this or anything else I've written. I've been allowed to read more grown-up books lately. Eva's Youth by Nicole van Schutelen is currently keeping me busy. I don't think there's much of a difference between this and books for teenage girls. Eva thought that children grew on trees, like apples, and that the stalk plucked them off the tree when they were ripe and brought them to the mothers. But her girlfriend's cat had kittens and Eva saw them coming out of a cat. So she thought cats laid eggs and hatched them like chickens, and that mothers who wanted a child also went upstairs a few days before their name to lay an egg and brood on it. After the babies arrived, the mothers were pretty weak from all that squatting. At some point, Eva wanted a baby too. She took a wool scarf and spread it on the ground so the egg could fall into it, and then she squatted down and began to push. She clucked as she waited, but no egg came out. Finally, after she'd been sitting for a long time, something did come, but it was a sausage instead of an egg. Eva was embarrassed. She thought she was sick. Funny, isn't it? There are also parts of Eva's youth that talk about women selling their bodies on the street and asking loads of money. I'd be mortified in front of a man like that. In addition, it mentions Eva's menstruation. Oh, I long to get my period. Then I'll really be grown up. Daddy is grumbling again and threatening to take away my diary. Oh, horror of horrors. From now on, I'm going to hide it. And Frank. Wednesday, October 7th, 1942. I imagine that. I've gone to Switzerland. Daddy and I sleep in one room, while the boy's study is turned into a sitting room, where I can receive visitors. As a surprise, they've bought new furniture for me, including a tea table, a desk, armchairs, and a divan. Everything's simply wonderful. After a few days, Daddy gives me 150 guilders, converted into Swiss money, of course, but I'll call them guilders and tells me to buy everything I think I'll need all by myself. I set off with Ben and buy three cotton undershirts, three cotton underpants, three wool undershirts, three wool underpants, two petticoats, two bras, five pajamas, one summer robe, one winter robe, two bed jackets, Anne's cousins Bernard and Stephen Elias. The Diary of a Young Girl, 
one small pillow, one pair of lightweight slippers, one pair of warm slippers, one pair of summer shoes school, one pair of summer shoes dressy, one pair of winter shoes for school, one pair of winter shoes dressy, two aprons, 25 handkerchiefs, four pairs of silk stockings, four pairs of knee socks, four pairs of socks, two pairs of thick stockings, three skeins of white yarn, three skeins of blue yarn, three skeins of variegated yarn, scarves, belts, collars, buttons plus two school dresses for summer, two school dresses for winter, two good dresses for summer, two good dresses for winter, one summer skirt, one good winter skirt, one school winter skirt, one raincoat, one summer coat, one winter coat, two hats, two caps, for a total of a hundred guilders, two purses, one ice skating outfit, one pair of skates, one case containing powder, skin cream, foundation cream, cleansing cream, suntan lotion, cotton, first aid kit, rouge, lipstick, eyebrow pencil, bath salts, bath powder, eau de coulomb, soap, powder puff, plus four sweaters, blouses, miscellaneous items, and books. October 9th, 1942. Dearest Kitty, today I have nothing but dismal and depressing news to report. Our many Jewish friends and acquaintances are being taken away in droves. The Gestapo is treating them very roughly and transporting them in cattle cars to Westerbrook. The big camp in Drenth to which they're sending all the Jews. Me told us about someone who'd managed to escape from there. It must be terrible in Westerbrook. People get almost nothing to eat, much less to drink, as water is available only one hour a day. And there's only one toilet and sink for several thousand people. Men and women sleep in the same room. And women and children often have their heads shaved. Escape is almost impossible. Many people look Jewish and they're branded by their shorn heads. If it's that bad in Holland, what must be like in those faraway and uncivilized places where the Germans are sending them? We assume that most of them are being murdered. The English radio says they're being gassed. Perhaps that's the quickest way to die. I feel terrible. Meep's accounts of these horrors are so heart-rending, and Meep is also very distraught. The other day, for instance, the Gestapo deposited an elderly, crippled Jewish woman on Meep's doorstep while they set off to find a car. The old woman was terrified of the glaring searchlights and the guns firing at the English planes overhead. Yet Meep didn't dare let her in. Nobody would. The Germans are generous enough when it comes to punishment. Bev is also very subdued. Her boyfriend is being sent to Germany. Every time the planes fly over, she's afraid they're going to drop their entire bomb load on Bertus's head. Jokes like, oh, don't worry, they can't all fall on him, or one bomb is all it takes, are hardly appropriate in this situation. Bertus is not the only one being forced to work in Germany. Train loads of young men depart daily. Some of them try to sneak off the train when it stops at the small station, but only a few manage to escape unnoticed and find a place to hide. But that's not the end of my lamentations. Have you ever heard the term hostages? That's the latest punishment for saboteurs. It's the most horrible thing you can imagine. Leading citizens, innocent people, are taken prisoner to await their execution. If the Gestapo can't find a saboteur, they simply grab five hostages and line them up against the wall. You read the announcements of their death in the paper, where they're referred to as fatal accidents. Find specimens of humanity, those Germans, and you think I'm actually one of them. No, that's not true. 
Hitler looked away our nationality long ago. And besides, there are no greater enemies on earth than the Germans and the Jews. Yours, Anne. Wednesday, October 14th, 1942. Dear Kitty, I'm terribly busy. Yesterday I began by translating a chapter from La Belle Nivenesse and writing down vocabulary words. Then I worked on an awful math problem and translated three pages of French grammar besides. Today, French grammar and history. I simply refuse to do that wretched math every day. Daddy thinks it's awful too. I'm almost better at it than he is, though in fact neither of us is any good, so we always have to call on Margaret's help. I'm also working away at my shorthand, which I enjoy. Of the three of us, I've made the most progress. I've read The Storm Family. It's quite good, but doesn't compare to Jupiterho. Anyway, the same words can be found in both books, which makes sense because they're written by the same author. Sissy van Maxveld is a terrific writer. I'm definitely going to let my own children read her books too. Moreover, I've read a lot of corner plays. I like the way he writes. For example, Hedwig, the cousin from Bremen, the governess, the green domino, etc. Mother, Margaret and I are once again the best of buddies. It's actually a lot nicer that way. Last night, Margaret and I were lying side by side in my bed. It was incredibly cramped, but that's what made it fun. She asked if she could read my diary once in a while. Parts of it, I said, and asked about hers. She gave me permission to read her diary as well. The conversation turned to the future, and I asked what she wanted to be when she was older. But she won't say and was quite mysterious about it. I gathered it had something to do with teaching. Of course, I'm not absolutely sure, but I suspect it's something along those lines. I really shouldn't be so nosy. This morning, I lay on Peter's bed. After first having chased him off it, he was furious, but I didn't care. He might consider being a little more friendly to me from time to time. After all, I did give him an apple last night. I once asked Margaret if she thought I was ugly. She said that I was cute and had nice eyes. A little fake, don't you think? Well, until next time. And Frank. P.S. This morning, we all took turns on the scale. Margaret now weighs 132 pounds, mother 136 Father, 155, Anne, 96, Peter, 140-something, Mrs. Van Dan, 117, Mr. Van Dan, 165. In the three months since I've been here, I've gained 19 pounds. A lot, huh? Tuesday, October 20th, 1942. Dearest Kitty, my hand's still shaking, though it's been two hours since we had the scare. I should explain that there are five fire extinguishers in the building. The office staff stupidly forgot to warn us that the carpenter, or whatever he's called, was coming to fill the extinguishers. As a result, we didn't bother to be quiet until I heard the sound of hammering on the landing. I immediately assumed it was the carpenter and went to warn Beb, who was eating lunch, that she couldn't go back downstairs. Father and I stationed ourselves at the door so we could hear when the man had left. After working for about 15 minutes, he laid his hammer and some other tools on our bookcase and banged on our door. We turned white with fear. Had he heard something after all and now wanted to check out this mysterious-looking bookcase? It seemed so, since he kept knocking, pulling, pushing and jerking on it. I was so scared I nearly fainted at the thought of this tall stranger managing to discover our wonderful hiding place. Just when I thought my days were numbered, 
We heard Mr. Clayman's voice saying, "Open up, it's me." We opened the door at once. What had happened? The hook fastening the bookcase had gotten stuck, which is why no one had been able to warn us about the carpenter. After the man had left, Mr. Clayman came to get Beb, but couldn't open the bookcase. I can't tell you how relieved I was. In my imagination, the man I thought was trying to get inside the secret annex had kept growing and growing until he'd become not only a giant but also the cruelest fascist in the world. Phew! Fortunately, everything worked out all right. At least this time, we had lots of fun on Monday. Meep and Yan spent the night with us. Margaret and I slept in father's and mother's room for the night so the geeses could have our beds. The menu was drawn up in their honor, and the meal was delicious. The festivities were briefly interrupted when father's lamp caught a short circuit, and we were suddenly plunged into darkness. What were we to do? We did have fuses, but the fuse box was at the rear of the dark warehouse, which made this a particularly unpleasant job at night. Still, the men ventured forth, and ten minutes later, we were able to put away the candles. I was up early this morning. Jan was already dressed. Since he had to leave at eight thirty, he was upstairs eating breakfast by eight. Meep was busy getting dressed, and I found her in her undershirt when I came in. She wears the same kind of long underwear I do when she bicycles. Margaret and I threw on our clothes as well and were upstairs earlier than usual. After a pleasant breakfast, Meep headed downstairs. It was pouring outside, and she was glad she didn't have to bicycle to work. Daddy and I made the beds, and afterward I learned five irregular French verbs. Quite industrious, don't you think? Margaret and Peter were reading in our room, and Moji curled up beside Margaret on the divan. After my irregular French verbs, I joined them and read "The Woods Are Singing for All Eternity." It's quite a beautiful book, but very unusual. I'm almost finished. Next week, it's Beb's turn to spend the night. Yours, Anne. Thursday, October twenty ninth, nineteen forty two. My dearest Kitty, I'm very worried. Father's sick. He's covered with spots and has a high temperature. It looks like measles. Just think, we can't even call a doctor. Mother is making him perspire in hopes of sweating out the fever. This morning, Meep told us that the furniture has been removed from the Van Dans apartment on Suda Amstelan. We haven't told Mrs. Van D yet. She's been so nervous lately, and I don't feel like hearing her moan and groan again about all the beautiful china and lovely chairs she had to leave behind. We had to abandon most of our nice things too. What's the good of grumbling about it now? Father wants me to start reading books by Hebel and other well-known German writers. I can read German fairly well by now, except that I usually mumble the words instead of reading them silently to myself. But that will pass. Father has taken the plays of Goethe and Schiller down from the big bookcase and is planning to read to me every evening. We've started off with Don Carlos. Encouraged by Father's good example, Mother pressed her prayer book into my hands. I read a few prayers in German just to be polite. They certainly sound beautiful, but they mean very little to me. Why is she making me act so religious and devout? Tomorrow we're going to light the stove for the first time. The chimney hasn't been swept in ages, so the room is bound to fill with smoke. Let's hope the thing draws. Yours, Anne. Monday, November second, nineteen forty-two. Dear Kitty, Bab stayed with us Friday evening. It was fun, but she didn't sleep very well because she drank some wine. For the rest, there's nothing special to report. 
I had an awful headache yesterday and went to bed early. Margaret's being exasperating again. This morning, I began sorting out an index card file from the office because it'd fallen over and gotten all mixed up. Before long, I was going nuts. I asked Margaret and Peter to help, but they were too lazy, so I put it away. I'm not crazy enough to do it all by myself. And Frank. P.S. I forgot to mention the important news that I'm probably going to get my period soon. I can tell because I keep finding a whitish smear in my panties, and Mother predicted it would start soon. I can hardly wait. It's such a momentous event. Too bad I can't use sanitary napkins, but you can't get them anymore. And Mama's tampons can be used only by women who've had a baby. Comment added by Anne on January twenty second, nineteen forty four. I wouldn't be able to write that kind of thing anymore. Now that I'm rereading my diary after a year and a half, I'm surprised at my childish innocence. Deep down, I know I could never be that innocent again. However much I'd like to be, I can understand the mood changes and the comments about Margaret, mother and father, as if I'd written them only yesterday. But I can't imagine writing so openly about other matters. It embarrasses me greatly to read the pains dealing with subjects that I remembered as being nicer than they actually were. My descriptions are so indelicate. But enough of that. I can also understand my homesickness and yearning for Morgia. The whole time I've been here, I've longed unconsciously and at times consciously for trust, love, and physical affection. This longing may change in intensity, but is always there. Thursday, November fifth, nineteen forty-two. Dear Kitty, the British have finally scored a few successes in Africa, and Stalingrad hasn't fallen yet. So the men are happy, and we had coffee and tea this morning. For the rest, nothing special to report. This week, I've been reading a lot and doing little work. That's the way things ought to be. That's surely the road to success. Mother and I are getting along better lately, but we're never close. Father's not very open about his feelings. But he's the same sweetheart he's always been. We lit the stove a few days ago, and the entire room is still filled with smoke. I prefer central heating, and I'm probably not the only one. Margaret's a stinker, a constant source of irritation, morning, noon, and night. And Frank, Saturday, November seventh, nineteen forty-two. Dearest Kitty, Mother's nerves are very much on edge, and that doesn't bode well for me. Is it just a coincidence that father and mother never scold Margaret and always blame me for everything? Last night, for example, Margaret was reading a book with beautiful illustrations. She got up and put the book aside for later. I wasn't doing anything, so I picked it up and began looking at the pictures. Margaret came back, saw her book in my hands, knitted her brow, and angrily demanded the book back. I wanted to look through it some more. Margaret got madder by the minute, and Mother butted in. Margaret was reading that book. Give it back to her. Father came in, and without even knowing what was going on, saw that Margaret was being wronged and lashed out at me. I'd like to see what you'd do if Margaret was looking at one of your books. I promptly gave in, put the book down, and according to them, left the room in a huff. I was neither huffing nor cross, but merely sad. It wasn't right of father to pass judgment without knowing what the issue was. I would have given the book to Margaret myself, and a lot sooner, if father and mother hadn't intervened and rushed to take Margaret's part, as if she was suffering some great injustice. 
Of course, mother took mother's side. They always take each other's sides. I'm so used to it that I've become completely indifferent to mother's rebukes and Margaret's moodiness. I love them, but only because they're mother and Margaret. I don't give a darn about them as people. As far as I'm concerned, they can go jump in the lake. It's different with father. When I see him being partial to Margaret, approving Margaret's every action, praising her, hugging her, I feel a gnawing ache inside because I'm crazy about him. I model myself after father, and there's no one in the world I love more. He doesn't realize that he treats Margaret differently than he does me. Margaret just happens to be the smartest, the kindest, the prettiest, and the best. But I have a right to be taken seriously too. I've always been the clown and mischief maker of the family. I've always had to pay double for my sins, once with scoldings and then again with my own sense of despair. I'm no longer satisfied with the meaningless affection or the supposedly serious talks. I long for something from father that he's incapable of giving. I'm not jealous of Margaret. I never have been. I'm not envious of her brains or her beauty. It's just that I'd like to feel that father really loves me, not because I'm his child, but because I'm me, Anne. I cling to father because my contempt of mother is growing daily, and it's only through him that I'm able to retain the last ounce of family feeling I have left. He doesn't understand that I sometimes need to vent my feelings for mother. He doesn't want to talk about it, and he avoids any discussion involving mother's failings. And yet, mother, with all her shortcomings, is tougher for me to deal with. I don't know how I should act. I can't very well confront her with her carelessness, her sarcasm, and her hard-heartedness. Yet I can't continue to take the blame for everything. I'm the opposite of mother, so of course we clash. I don't mean to judge her. I don't have that right. I'm simply looking at her as a mother. She's not a mother to me. I have to mother myself. I've cut myself adrift from them. I'm charting my own course, and we'll see where it leads me. I have no choice because I can picture what a mother and a wife should be, and can't seem to find anything of the sort in the woman I'm supposed to call mother. I tell myself time and again to overlook mother's bad example. I only want to see her good points and to look inside myself for what's lacking in her, but it doesn't work. And the worst part is that father and mother don't realize their own inadequacies and how much I blame them for letting me down. Are there any parents who can make the children completely happy? Sometimes I think God is trying to test me, both now and in the future. I'll have to become a good person on my own, without anyone to serve as a model or advise me. But it'll take me stronger in the end. Who else but me is ever going to read these letters? Who else but me can I turn to for comfort? I'm frequently in need of consolation. I often feel weak, and more often than not, I fail to meet expectations. I know this, and every day I resolve to do better. They aren't consistent in their treatment of me. One day they say that Anne's a sensible girl entitled to know everything, and the next that Anne's a silly goose. Who doesn't know a thing and yet imagines she'd learn all she needs to know from books? I'm no longer the baby and spoiled little darling whose every deed can be laughed at. I have my own ideas, plans, and ideals, but am unable to articulate them yet. Oh well, so much comes into my head at night when I'm alone, or during the day when I'm obliged to put up with people I can't abide or who invariably misinterpret my intentions. That's why I always wind up coming back to my diary. 
I start there and end there because Kitty's always patient. I promise her that despite everything, I'll keep going. That I'll find my own way and choke back my tears. I only wish I could see some results, or just once, receive encouragement from someone who loves me. Don't condemn me, but think of me as a person who sometimes reaches the bursting point. Yours, Anne. Devout. Devout. Adjective. Having or showing deep religious feeling or commitment. 